Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, February 5th, 2024, the 1111th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So we're going to start today on immigration, the big subject of the day, or at least it was for the morning. And now we're being told about King Charles having cancer. 
And so now Sauron's lazy eye has redirected the attention of the normie sphere to the latest gossip about our kings and our queens. Oh, I know. I know. It's just a ceremonial role that they serve. And also they have final say on the prime minister of 54 countries around the world. No big deal. But let's talk about this Senate immigration deal, this package that has finally been released to the public so that people can actually go over what's in it rather than arguing about how much we need it, despite having no idea what's in it. And let's set the stage with the timing and how all of this has played out over the last couple of months, because we got to know how we got here. All of this funding was being pushed at the end of last year, at the end of 2023. Joe Biden wants $110 billion for fake foreign proxy wars in Ukraine, Israel, and eventually Taiwan. And that is what the regime is saying it wants. And then the regime is saying, if you give us that thing, we're going to give you back this other thing. And the thing we're going to give you back is immigration reform. We're going to fix those problems down there at the southern border that we have denied for the last three years while causing those problems. You say you want that border problem fixed, that border problem we caused, that border problem we denied. You want that fixed? Okay, we're going to fix it for you. We're not going to fix it your way. And it's not going to be fixed in the way you would define fixed. But what we're going to do is increase the surveillance state down at the border so that we can have a test run for how we're going to increase the security state throughout the rest of the country, the surveillance state. And we will tell you, hey, this is what worked down at the border. This is what solved all your problems. So we're going to do this for you, too. And then, of course, they want facilities and technology and additional staff. They want people to be able to process all of these asylum seekers much more quickly, let them into the country so they can do all these very important jobs that we just don't have American workers for. Now, none of that will fix the problem down at the southern border. The problem, of course, being that we have a global slave trade operating at our border in league with cartels, the private armies of the global regime, in league with all of these non-governmental organizations. It won't solve that problem at all, but what it will do is make the TV stop talking about immigration again, like the TV had not been talking about it these last few years. And that, as far as you're concerned, is almost the same as solving it for the regime. That is what they offer you. We agree not to show you uncomfortable immigration stories that make you mad for a while if you give us this money. If you say that you are willing to extend your indentured servitude and the indentured servitude of your children for decades more then we are going to, you know, do the things that we already want to do at the border. And we're told that these terms have been negotiated over the course of a few months now. They wanted all this stuff done last fall as we headed into last winter. And instead, they got their must-pass legislation. They got their National Defense Authorization Act. They got their farm bill. They kicked the can down the road. They set two deadlines up, January 19th, February 2nd. And they said, you know what? We're going to take care of this next year. We're just going to keep the government open and keep spending until next year. And before that first deadline, they extended the deadline again. They said, we're going to keep spending for another five weeks, another six weeks till March 1st and March 8th. This January 19th, this February 2nd, going to be replaced with March 1st, March 8th. So February 2nd, that was last Friday. Nothing happened. They've still been pushing this whole narrative about getting these bills signed, but there was no deadline. There was no rush to do anything. 
So nothing happened. But that hasn't stopped them from pushing the narrative that they intended to push to take advantage of that deadline. And that includes the concertina wire issue down at the southern border. Greg Abbott, who's had the border open for the slave trade to operate at Texas's southern border for the last three years. Well, now he's got concertina wire there. So problem solved. Joe Biden says, oh, we're going to cut down that concertina wire. And the Supreme Court says, go ahead. And after that happened, we were told, oh, you are getting dangerously close to civil war here. Now, there are very interesting constitutional issues, very interesting states' rights issues to discuss and deal with over this situation. But the idea that somehow a non-problem just reached a moment of absolute urgency and emergency, well, that doesn't make any sense. We've had various sub-narratives to support all of that, to make everyone across the country understand we need to do whatever these people want to do at the border because the problem is so big. As I said last week, they haven't changed the terms of the negotiations over the course of a few months. It's been the same negotiation for the same deal on the same terms. There's nothing that's going to get the House to pass any of this. And the regime doesn't want to just give up on their agenda items. So they're going to do what they always do. They're going to try to manipulate the narrative in order to leverage public sentiment and get people to fold acquiescing to the demands of the regime. None of that seems to be working amongst all the immigration talk, the illegal alien talk, the sanctuary city talk, the crime talk, the being freed without bail talk. All of the problems of illegal aliens that we are getting just pounded with right now in the narrative after hearing nothing about it for years, all of that talk overlaps with these spending deadlines. It overlaps with this bill. It overlaps with the Supreme Court decision. It overlaps with this trucker convoy that was supposed to happen over the weekend. And it did happen. I'm told people have sent pictures. They said there were a few hundred people there. And hey, for all the nice Patriotic Americans who are acting in good faith, thinking that they need to show their physical presence and put out the effort to show up at these events. Cheers, guys. All right. I'm not trying to insult you. Okay. But the thing is, that's an op. Nothing could ever be more obviously an op. The leader of that effort appeared out of nowhere a few weeks ago, and he's now some sort of cult hero. Oh, this guy's the new truth teller, the new hero. Well, we've seen that a bunch of times over the past few years on a whole bunch of issues. And it hasn't panned out once yet, has it? Now, I'm not trying to say bad things about this guy. I just have no reason to believe that any of this is real while it intersects all of these other things. Where was the trucker convoy three years ago for the southern border? Is the immigration problem worse now? No. But what they want to do is create a frenzy over this problem so that they can push through this legislation. And they tell us this all the time. They could not possibly be making it any clearer. And you have to wonder what that whole trucker convoy setup was for. That was meant to be a very big info op. And even if it was all entirely organic and done in good faith, it's still an info op. They wanted to show their numbers to convince other people, look, this is what the country believes. It can still be analyzed as an info op, even if you're going to say that everybody there was just participating spontaneously in something that they believe to be good and that the people running it and setting it up from the beginning also believe it to be good. Now, two weeks ago, we were told it was going to be a really big deal. And instead, it made absolutely no news whatsoever. Why is that? 
It's because those initial narratives for which this thing seemed like such an urgent event, all of them just faded into the background among all the other things that are going on. Because ultimately, there was no civil war coming over concertina wire. We are watching a staged drama play out within the narrative, meant to rile all of us up, so we all demand this ridiculous immigration bill be passed. And so let's go to Axios for their mainstream reporting about what's in this package. This is from yesterday, Sunday, February 4th. Senate releases new $118 billion package for Ukraine-Israel border. Hey, what happened to that whole Taiwan thing? Oh, yeah, that's in there. They're just not telling you that in the headline because you don't know that you're supposed to care a lot about that yet. The Senate Appropriations Committee released on Sunday the text of their sweeping $118.3 billion emergency spending package, which combines foreign aid with restrictive policy changes for the U.S.-Mexico border. The bill's fate is highly uncertain, with the package held up for months as a bipartisan group of senators hashed out a border deal to appease Republicans. An initial vote is expected this week. Okay, so first off, We need to begin understanding this as a unipartisan group of senators. These aren't two parties coming together who are normally fighting like cats and dogs. Now they're coming together to do the right thing for the American people. That's not what this is. This is both sides of the uniparty announcing that, yes, they are the same. They have the same interests and they are happy to work together on these things and tell Americans Hey, Americans, right now, we're not fighting. You know how we're always fighting? We're like always the opposite, totally opposites all the time. Well, this time we are getting together because it's just that important. It's a little give and take. You see, we're both getting everything we want and the American people are giving us those things. We take, they give, but it's in a unipartisan fashion, which means this time we're looking out for the interests of everyone. And of course, they're presenting this as a border deal to appease Republicans. It's not a compromise to appease Republicans. It's marketing that you have compromised to appease Republicans. Whereas, once again, you're just trying to manipulate leverage within the narrative to get people who will not go along to go along. Republicans are divided on whether to support additional aid for Ukraine and whether the newly negotiated border measures go far enough to stop illegal border crossings. But more accurately, the Union Party wants additional aid for Ukraine. Some Republicans don't. MAGA Republicans don't. The American people don't. The Union Party also wants to pass the border package. They're not giving something away. They want both things. And it doesn't actually do anything to shut down immigration. So it's not that it doesn't go far enough to stop illegal border crossings. It doesn't go anywhere at all to stop illegal border crossings. In fact, it allows 5,000 of them every single day. Some progressive Democrats are expected to vote against what would be one of the most restrictive border bills of the century. According to what? According to nothing. The regime has just marketed it that way. Who are they pretending to be restricting? Speaker Mike Johnson is undermining the effort further by planning a vote on an Israel-only aid package. I thought they wanted the aid to Israel. Wasn't that the most important thing? Isn't Israel desperate for this aid? But apparently not. 
They can't help Israel right now because if they help Israel with an Israel only aid package, then they lose the only thing they can convince anyone is worth having in order to get the rest of it passed. Americans are convinced, evangelical Americans particularly, are convinced that this global regime proxy state of Israel is the exact same thing as the biblical state of Israel because they have the same name and the regime tells us, hey, this is Israel. And so therefore, we as Christians have to support that global regime proxy state of Israel in any way they could possibly want. If the TV tells us we need to do X to support Israel, then we do X. If they tell us we need to do Y, we do Y. If they tell us we need to do X and Y and the opposite of X and Y, well, we got to do all those things. You can oppose the agenda of the global regime, but if they say, oh, oh, ooh, this one's for Israel, well, then you got to obey. The devil's in the details, Johnson told Fox Business on Friday. We'll check it out. I'm not prejudging anything. They have a section called By the Numbers. And note the package includes $60 billion for supporting Ukraine. $60 billion for Ukraine. They don't even know who's running their army. They have made no progress in two years of this fake foreign proxy war. There has been no point where they were winning. There was no point where there was a chance of them winning. They have not even stopped Russia from doing any of the things that Russia wanted to do. And we still have to give them 60 billion more dollars, even though everyone has realized that they were suckers from day one. $14 billion for Israel and $4.8 billion for the Indo-Pacific. And you're just supposed to shrug and be like, huh? Oh, yeah, that Indo-Pacific. I hear there's a poor Asian Islanders there. I suppose they do need four point eight billion dollars. An additional ten billion dollars is earmarked for humanitarian assistance for civilians in Gaza and the West Bank, Ukraine and other populations. So you see. We need another $10 billion because we destroyed all these areas. And in order to help the people in these areas that we have systematically destroyed, we're going to need, <laughs> I guess we're just going to need to extend your indentured servitude a little further. Get it? It's for you. Nearly $20 billion of the funds for Ukraine will go toward replenishing U.S. military weapons and equipment. Well, hey, that's good because, I mean, at least it stays on shore until we... Yeah, I mean, I guess until we send it over to one of these fake foreign proxy wars. And then, of course, it actually gets uh, lost and, you know, sold on the black market. But at least it's good for us and our military for a while. The cost of the border policy changes come to $20 billion for transportation, for deportation, shelters, more than 4,000 new asylum officers, more border agents anti-fentanyl trafficking efforts, and other resources. Now, all of those things sound like they could actually help the border problem. At least that is, depending on who's directing them. Now, we should at least consider the possibility that maybe some of this will be argued at some point and people will have to understand it actually does require some sort of operation to be able to engage this massive scale of deportations Necessary to actually fix the illegal alien problem in this country, but it wouldn't be responsible for anyone to push this forward. 
without knowing how that will be directed. But let's listen to the rest of the Axios sales pitch. The funding will cover significant asylum and border policy changes over three years. It raises the standard for the first step of the asylum process, which could lead to more migrants being removed from the U.S. faster. It requires all asylum seekers to be detained or placed in tracking programs until they pass that initial interview or are granted asylum in what would be an expedited six-month process in total. I mean, that doesn't sound like anything. Most notably, the package includes emergency authority to automatically turn back illegal border crossers to Mexico with no guarantee of seeking asylum when the weekly average for encounters reaches 4,000 a day. The emergency action would be required at 5,000 encounters per day. That's 150,000 per month. That is 1.8 million per year. That is not people escaping climate change or gang violence in their home country. That is a massive global human trafficking operation. That is a slave trade. Government entities already have more than adequate power to shut down the border and prevent anyone from coming in and being released into America. They can all be sent back. We don't need a spending bill passed to create the authority to protect our borders from invasion. And we especially don't need to give up $110 billion for fake foreign proxy wars in order to provide these people the encouragement to actually protect our borders from invasion. Speaker of the currently illegitimate House of Representatives, Mike Johnson, said yesterday on X, formerly Twitter, I've seen enough. This bill is even worse than we expected and won't come close to ending the border catastrophe the president has created. As the lead Democrat negotiator proclaimed, under this legislation, quote, the border never closes, end quote. If this bill reaches the House, it will be dead on arrival. The duly elected president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, said on Truth Social this morning, only a fool or a radical left Democrat would vote for this horrendous border bill which only gives shutdown authority after 5,000 encounters a day when we already have the right to close the border now, which must be done. The bill is a great gift to the Democrats and a death wish for the Republican Party. It takes the horrible job the Democrats have done on immigration and the border, absolves them, and puts it all squarely on the shoulders of Republicans. Don't be stupid. We need a separate border and immigration bill. It should not be tied to foreign aid in any way, shape, or form. The Democrats broke immigration and the border. They should fix it. Make America great again. Now, it's better not to have any bill at all, and Donald Trump has said that as well, but it sounds like he is being at least a little supportive of the idea that, quote-unquote, something needs to be done about immigration. What needs to be done is that people need to do their duty with the authorities that have already been handed over to them. And it's important to remember that the people hand power to elected representatives. It's not that they are the authorities who hold power over us. We have given them that power as the people, and that power can be taken away. That's what it means to govern with the consent of the governed. We often forget that it is actually these people's job to go to Washington and represent our interests, not to go there 
figure out what the regime agenda is, and then market that agenda to us as if it's all in our best interest. That's not what their job is. We have people in there who aren't legitimately elected and who assumed office anyway, knowing of their own illegitimacy. And now we have them violating their oath of office that they violated by taking to begin with. And now they're asking for additional powers. Donald Trump followed up and said the ridiculous border in quotes bill is nothing more than a highly sophisticated trap for Republicans to assume the blame on what the radical left Democrats have done to our border just in time for our most important ever election. Don't fall for it. The Uniparty created the problem. Now the Uniparty wants to take credit for solving the problem, not by actually solving the problem, but by working with the television to sell Americans on the idea that they realized the problem was actually a problem three years too late. But once they did, they sprung right into action and solved the problem on our behalf. Therefore, you can't blame them for any of the immigration problem. When you were complaining about it, it wasn't a problem and you were a conspiracy theorist. But then once the TV agreed with you, everybody finally realized it was a problem and the Uniparty immediately solved it in unipartisan fashion. Chuck Schumer took to MSNBC this morning to update the global regime and threaten the American people. He is actually threatening the American people on behalf of the global regime. He is saying, you will give us your permission to do this or else we're going to take your kids and we're going to kill them in foreign lands. And it's important to understand while you're listening to this, that Chuck Schumer is reading his talking points as he goes. You'd have to watch the video. You can find it t.me slash very reasonable. That's the info stream on Telegram. You can watch the Chuck Schumer video. But every time he's about to go into a new talking point, he looks down and reads his paper. But here we go. Check out this cretinous little troll of a Bond villain. You've said that you worked very closely with Leader McConnell on this, this bill, now that we see what's in it, seems to be as bipartisan as it gets. Why wouldn't this, why wouldn't both sides really want this to go through? Well, it's a great question, Mika. Look, it took a long time, four months of arduous negotiations. They fell off the tracks a whole bunch of times. I had to be on the phone even at midnight saying we've got to keep going. Why? We're at a turning point in America. This bill is crucial, and history will look back on it and say, did America fail itself? Why is it crucial? Well, if we don't aid uh, Ukraine, Putin will be walk all over Ukraine. We will lose the war, and we could be fighting in Eastern Europe in a NATO ally in a few years. Americans won't like that. If we don't help Israel defend itself against Hamas, that perpetual war will go on and on and on. If we don't help humanitarian aid to the starving Palestinians in Gaza, hundreds of thousands could starve. And the border, everyone has said it's chaos. A speaker, you just saw Speaker Johnson, he said it's mm -hmm. chaos, we have to do something legislative a few months ago. But what has happened, in answer your, to que your question, so this is crucial for America, it's a turning point. History is going to look over our shoulders and say, did we rise to the occasion? To his credit, Mitch McConnell did. But too many Republicans, yeah. including Speaker Johnson, are just scared to death of Donald Trump. Donald Trump has said he wants chaos. 
Donald Trump has said, well, wait till I become president. That'll take at least a year. Ukraine could be gone. The border will get much worse. War in the Middle East will get worse, maybe bring, bringing, bringing us into it. He's doing it all for political reasons. And let me just say, will senators, the crucial question, the $64,000 question, the majority of Republican senators know this bill is the right thing to do. It's a compromise. I don't like everything in it. Neither does McConnell. But it's a compromise. That's the only way you get things important done in the Senate. We proved that two years ago in our bipartisan legislation. And will the senators drown out the political noise from Trump and his minions and do mm -hmm. the right thing for America? It's a crucial question. History will, is looking down on every one of us right now. Now, there was no real argument there. It was just, you all need to do what we say or else terrible things are going to happen. You're going to find yourself in a war in Eastern Europe fighting against Russia in a few years. No, we won't. We're going to find ourselves dragged into this Israel Hamas war in the Middle East. No, no, we won't. Hundreds of thousands of Gazans are going to die if we don't send them humanitarian aid. What? I thought we were helping Israel glass the place. Isn't that what all the neocons were saying last fall? Oh, we got to glass that place. Let's just destroy everyone, everyone in Gaza, all the Palestinians. They're all supporters of Hamas. I mean, Hamas got, quote unquote, elected in a very free and fair election there, right? That means all the citizens definitely support them. Therefore, we can kill them all. Therefore, glass the whole place. We got a canal to build. And while we were paying Israel to glass the place, now we also have to pay for all of the people that they kill and maim and leave homeless and foodless makes sense. And of course, then we also have to send billions down to the border because if we don't do that, then people can't do their job of protecting the border with the power that they already have to protect the border. So there's no argument there. It's just that Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer have come to this agreement. They don't like everything in the bill, but they agreed this is, this is the right thing for the American people. So now it has to be passed. Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell have agreed that this is the right thing for the American people. So now it is everybody else's responsibility to give them what they want. That's what it means to have a government of by and for the people. Two ridiculous, old, corrupt, criminal perverts get to tell everybody that they compromised with one another and everybody else has to then support them. And we have to do it on the basis that the political experts, you know, we have medical experts to deal with, quote unquote, viruses. And so we have political experts to deal with political issues. And the people who are the experts at politics are the people who are politicians. Therefore, this is what the experts say we need to do to fix this problem. We need to trust the experts now and support them. I mean, they've said quite clearly that they worked together to find a bipartisan solution as bipartisan as it gets, according to Mika Brzezinski. Now, as bipartisan as it gets doesn't mean anything. Are you claiming that both parties in full agree to do something? Is that what it means for something to be as bipartisan as it gets? And if all of them agree about both sides of a deal but disagree with another group of people whose approval they need to get the deal done, well, then they're one side and the people whose approval they need are the other side. 
What has happened is not two sides coming together. What has happened is the Uniparty has shown itself and they believe that they can wage this pressure campaign until the people who actually represent the alternative decide to acquiesce to the demands. But they're not going to decide to do that. Therefore, your bill is dead in the water. Now, there is plenty of time to still be disappointed on this. Don't get me wrong. But as of right now, it seems like we are on track for no bill. And this could get interesting quickly because those early March deadlines are coming right up. March 1st, March 8th. It seems like we are on target to add this debate into the government shutdown, continuing resolution, spending bill debate at large in early March. March 1st is less than four weeks away. So you can expect them to continue trying to ramp up the narrative need to get this bill packaged. They're going to create a sense of destabilization when it comes to Ukraine and when it comes to Israel. There could be something with China, Taiwan. Just got to see that a little bit. Tell people something dangerous might be happening and then pop off a few border events. Some stories of trafficking, maybe some stories of terrorism. Make sure that everybody is appropriately horrified about all of these events and then give one more big push to get this spending bill passed. People need to understand, though, that there's not going to be some point at which this Republican Congress, in quotes, starts passing all kinds of legislation that fixes the country this year. There's no chance that's going to happen. The Senate's not going to go along with it. Joe Biden's not going to sign it. And the whole thing is illegitimate in the first place. We're basically just watching the controlled demolition of this system as we go through the year. It's good to understand the mechanics of government and how this stuff works. It's good to have discussions and debate and argue over the fundamental principles at stake and over the constitutional issues. All of that stuff is good and productive, but we don't need to freak out about what's on the television. We don't need to worry that if we don't pass legislation, something is going to get worse. We don't need to be intimidated by their demands or their threats, and we don't need to fall into agreeing with them about their understanding of what represents a catastrophic problem in this country. They are going to tell us until it happens that a government shutdown is the worst possible thing that could ever happen, but it's not. We're going to see that and we should be ready for that. We should embrace that when it comes. They're going to tell us it's terrible. They're going to show us all the reasons why it's terrible. They're going to tell us about all the things we're not funding and how the world is going to fall apart while we don't fund them. But it's not true. And that shutdown will just eventually be cover for what has to happen. People seem to forget often that we are in an information war against millennia old evil and central bankers. If you want to solve the problem, it's going to be a bumpy ride every now and then. If you think that problem is going to be fixed by pressing a few buttons on an iPad screen attached to a black box one day this fall, and everything is going to be all roses and sunshine after that. You're fooling yourself. That's not the end of the road. It's not the end of the job. It's not the end of the awakening. It's not what all this is for. I love and support Donald Trump. I think he's a great man who has awoken our country to an understanding of life and events that we would not otherwise have had. And I think it is just a glorious outcome. But I imagine Trump himself would tell you that him being reelected in November 2024, having already won in November 2020 
and never conceding is not the ultimate purpose of this entire period. He said he was handing power back to the people. There is absolutely no justification for going through all of this if our only intention is to replace their liars with our liars, their actors with our actors, their criminals with our criminals, and just swapping which side of the controlled opposition dynamic gets to pretend they're in power for now. It's not better to be ruled by one side of the uniparty than the other, although that's what we pretend. We go in to vote, right? We choose Donald Trump. We choose a couple other Republicans whose names we know. And then we choose just a bunch of Republicans up and down the ballot because they have little R's next to their name. Well, are they going to be on the side of America first? Are they going to be MAGA? Or are they just servants of the Uniparty with little R's next to their name who we've just empowered? We need to learn the lessons and then we need to apply the lessons. We don't learn the lessons and then say, hey, we're going to apply all of these lessons once all the normies have woken up. And we're just going to support everybody who keeps these normies trapped three years in the past until they wake up because those guys are the ones who are going to wake the normies up. So we'll cap off the conversation on this illegal alien slash fake foreign proxy war bill with the statement from House Republican leadership, Speaker Johnson, Leader Scalise, Whip Emmer and Chairwoman Stefanik today released the following statement regarding the Senate's immigration bill. House Republicans oppose the Senate immigration bill because it fails in every policy area needed to secure our border and would actually incentivize more illegal immigration. Among its many flaws, the bill expands work authorizations for illegal aliens while failing to include critical asylum reforms. Even worse, its language allowing illegals to be released from physical custody would effectively endorse the Biden catch and release policy. The so-called shutdown authority in the bill is anything but riddled with loopholes that grant far too much discretionary authority to Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, who has proven he will exploit every measure possible in defiance of the law to keep the border open. The bill also fails to adequately stop the president's abuse of parole authority and provides for taxpayer funds to fly and house illegal immigrants in hotels through the FEMA Shelter and Services Program. Because President Biden has refused to utilize his broad executive authority to end the border catastrophe that he has created, the House led nine months ago with the passage of the Secure the Border Act, H.R. 2. That bill contains the necessary components to actually stem the flow of illegals and end the present crisis. The Senate must take it up immediately. America's sovereignty is at stake. Any consideration of this Senate bill in its current form is a waste of time. It is dead on arrival in the House. We encourage the U.S. Senate to reject it. So we shall see if they end up passing this standalone Israel aid package. And I imagine that we will hear about how they're going back to the drawing board. The two sides are going to get together to keep negotiating which basically means they'll try to increase the threats or increase the pressure on various members of the Republican House caucus who are not stepping up to push this bill forward. 
Maybe they'll find some rhino member to bring a motion to vacate, to get rid of Mike Johnson and replace him with someone that's going to push legislation like this forward because the uniparty understands that they have enough uniparty members in the house. Mike Johnson is preventing the bill from coming to the floor, but if he brought it to the floor, maybe they'll get a hundred or 150 Republicans in there. And of course they would have plenty of Democrats on board to get the thing passed and send it to the fake president so that they could keep the gravy train rolling down the tracks. Maybe we will see that coming over the next few weeks as they progress toward these deadlines. It may become clear that they're headed toward a government shutdown and they will try to replace Mike Johnson with someone else who will actually do the bidding of the uniparty and will push through all of these unipartisan compromises. And one last note, the Chamber of Commerce is applying pressure to Mike Johnson. This is Newsweek this morning. Mike Johnson faces rebellion from America's largest lobbying group. The Chamber of Commerce, which represents and advocates for businesses, said on Monday that it was, quote, pleased to see desperately needed border security, asylum and immigration reforms included in the emergency supplemental funding proposal before the U.S. Senate. In a statement, executive vice president and chief policy officer for the group, Neil Bradley, wrote, the economic disruption and human suffering wrought by our border crisis have become so severe that Congress cannot afford to ignore these problems any longer. We look forward to working with members of Congress to pass these common sense measures that will improve America's security by addressing our southern border and supporting Ukraine and Israel. But of course, that is ridiculous. Just wants the continuous flow of quote unquote low wage labor into the country. The problem has not now become so severe. They are just manipulating and leveraging public sentiment in order to push the uniparty agenda forward. Both sides of this negotiation are the uniparty. It is not a bipartisan compromise. It is just the action of a fully compromised uniparty. So let's turn to a place where there does not seem to be a uniparty at all, at least to the extent to which we can assume anything at all to be true, which we can never assume. But the results in El Salvador seem to speak for themselves. You might be aware of El Salvador's president, Nayib Bukele. He is the man responsible for the resurgence of El Salvador. He has put into place policy that actually rounds up these members of these brutal gangs throughout Central America, and it imprisons them and prosecutes them rather than allowing them to control the entire country. And he is pushing forward Bitcoin as currency. Bukele was overwhelmingly reelected El Salvador's president yesterday. But as always, it's worth paying attention to the details because the details of these elections worldwide and the processes leading up to these elections continue to confirm that the same playbook from both sides is playing out all over the world in different places at different times. Different countries are just at different points in that cycle. And there are variations in terms of the election fraud system in a given country. In terms of the attempts at destabilization in a given country, is it all economic or is there an actual color revolution playing out on the ground in a given country? Is it 
an internal social justice movement? Or is it illegal aliens? Or is it terrorist groups? Or is it all of those? They're trying to throw everything at the United States right now, and they have been for years. Now, in the lead up to this election, there have been some really spectacular headlines in the mainstream media. NPR's headline from Saturday, El Salvador is poised to reelect its popular but authoritarian president. Now, we're told that democracy is the most important thing. So if the president is popular, if people are voting for what NPR considers authoritarian, what's the point of even calling it authoritarian? Why aren't they referring to him as an overwhelmingly popular, democratically elected president? Oh, I forgot. That's only for people like Joe Biden, who get the most votes ever in very real elections. The L.A. Times yesterday ran a headline from Associated Press, self-described world's coolest dictator on track to win El Salvador elections. And let's take just a second with this. It starts this way. Salvadorans voted in presidential and legislative elections Sunday, with many expressing willingness to forego some elements of democracy if it means keeping gang violence at bay. With soaring approval ratings and virtually no competition, Nayib Bukele was almost certainly headed for a second five-year term as president. After voting, he jousted with reporters, asserting that the election results would serve as a referendum on his administration. And that is what we are told elections are, right? How are people who are overwhelmingly voting for Nayib Bukele foregoing elements of democracy. It's like they've changed the definition of democracy. And the word now just means adherence to the agenda of the global communist regime. People have decided to forego some of the agenda of the global communists and reelect the guy they actually want to represent them doing so democratically. Let's turn to the mouthpiece of the global regime when it comes to elections, Reuters, which is always my go-to. That is my initial stop for analyzing these elections. You go to Reuters, you look up what they're saying about the elections. Understand the official story from the central narrative, from the global propaganda media. Now, normally when I'm doing this, I'll type in the name of the country, El Salvador. I'll type in Reuters. And I'll type in claims election fraud because I want to know if there are any claims about how the election is going to be beset with fraud. And it turns out I can't find any of that for this El Salvador election. In fact, all of the media outlets everywhere say that Bukele was poised to win in a landslide. So let's do a before and after from Reuters. This is their article in the lead up to the election. El Salvador President Bukele poised for another landslide as voters head to polls. Salvadorans head to polls on Sunday in elections expected to hand President Nayib Bukele another landslide victory, with many happy to overlook the young leader's authoritarian drift after he crushed gang violence paralyzing life across the country. Wildly popular, Bukele, 42, has campaigned on the success of his draconian security strategy that saw authorities suspend civil liberties to arrest thousands of suspected gang members without charges. 
The detentions led to a collapse in nationwide murder rates and transformed the poor Central American nation that was once among the world's most dangerous. Polls show most voters now appear set to reward Bukele for decimating the crime groups that made life intolerable for El Salvador's 6.3 million people and fueled waves of migration to the U.S. A firebrand politician who often spars with foreign leaders and foes on social media, Bukele came to power in 2019, trouncing El Salvador's traditional parties with a vow to eliminate gang violence and rejuvenate the country's stagnant economy. Since then, he has used his New Ideas Party's supermajority in the Legislative Assembly to reshape courts and institutions, solidifying his grip on key parts of the government. He also championed the introduction of Bitcoin as a legal tender, drawing criticism from the International Monetary Fund. Bukele is set to be the first Salvadoran president in more than 100 years to be re-elected. Last year, El Salvador's Supreme Electoral Tribunal permitted him to run for a second term, even though the country's constitution prohibits it. Opponents voiced fears Bukele would seek to rule for life following President Daniel Ortega from next door Nicaragua. Rights groups have warned El Salvador's democracy is under attack. Bukele has largely dismissed those concerns, at one point changing his profile on X, the social media platform, to say, world's coolest dictator. Salvadorans seem unfazed with polls showing about 80% of them support him. So he's doing a great job, the country loves him, and he has been successfully able to navigate his way out of the global regime's strictures as they set them in place in El Salvador. What we're seeing over time is even these small countries throwing off the control of the global regime. We've seen it in Southeast Asia, in Myanmar. That was three years ago now. We've seen it throughout Central Africa, and now we're seeing it in parts of South America and Central America. But let's go to the results. This is also Reuters. El Salvador's Bukele declares victory in presidential poll. This is from today. President Nayib Bukele on Sunday declared himself winner of El Salvador's national elections in a landslide, claiming he captured more than 85% of the vote, even though electoral officials have not released any results. Bukele said his New Ideas Party also captured at least 58 positions in El Salvador's 60-seat Legislative Assembly, citing unspecified information that he had access to. A record in the entire democratic history of the world, Bukele said on X, the social media site. See you at 9 p.m. in front of the National Palace. He's saying that he has set the record in the history of democratic elections world over with the magnitude of this win, with the percentage of the vote that he received. Electoral officials have not commented on the results yet. Polls closed at 5 p.m., about two hours before Bukele claimed victory. An exit poll by CID Gallup put Bukele's support at 87%. Bukele now appears to become the first Salvadoran president in almost a century to be reelected. If his predictions are accurate, he will wield unprecedented power and be able to overhaul El Salvador's constitution, which his opponents fear will result in scrapping of term limits. 
Now, just so you don't think that this enormously popular figure is actually doing good things that other world leaders could emulate, Reuters wants you to know that he's actually destroying their entire economy. Reuters says extreme poverty has doubled and private investment has tumbled under Bukele. There has not been much momentum on his highly publicized plans for Bitcoin City, a tax-free crypto haven powered by geothermal energy from a volcano. The IMF, which is negotiating a $1.3 billion bailout with El Salvador in late 2023, described the country's fiscal situation as fragile, although apparently 90% of the country just doesn't care, or maybe just maybe. They don't see the country being economically fragile the way the global regime and the International Monetary Fund see it. When they're saying investment has pulled out of the country, they mean that elements of the global regime are no longer funneling money into the evil twin faction elements of the country in order to support their role and their infiltration to keep El Salvador in the column of the global regime. CNN added an interesting wrinkle to this. This is from their article covering El Salvador's election today. El Salvador's Nayib Bukele set for landslide election victory. They say earlier on Monday, the federal election authority said it asked polling stations across the country to manually record the results of Sunday's presidential election after electronic transmission of results stopped updating overnight. The court said it took its decision based on the country's electoral code and after actions that, quote unquote, hindered the transmission of primary results and, quote, other factors beyond the control of the court without elaborating further. Polling stations are now manually reporting voting records with both election officials and party representatives taking, quote, photographic or scanned evidence, end quote, of the records before sending them to the court. So it sounds like there's something a little bit strange happening down there. Worth keeping an eye on. CNN also writes, it is clear among the Salvadorian public that, quote, there is a strong bottom-up mandate to continue with the state of exception that has brought security, even as it has completely shredded any kind of presupposition of innocence or rights to trial or to a lawyer for anyone The government is interested in going after Will Freeman, a fellow for Latin American studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, told CNN an overwhelming win for Bukele would likely give the young leader more leeway to reform El Salvador in his heavy handed vision. Bukele has not shied away from comparisons to autocrats once setting his Twitter biography to read the world's coolest dictator. And his government has said they are, quote, eliminating democracy in the country. They link to a panicking New York Times article from the other day. The headline was he cracked down on gangs and rights. Now he's set to win a landslide. And it's hilarious. I mean, it really is funny. The people in the country absolutely love what he's doing, but we're supposed to believe that he is some kind of autocratic authoritarian dictator who is cracking down and destroying civil rights in his society. 90% of the country loves what he's doing. He's removing the global regime. 
they practice an inversion of democracy. They steal elections and then they just implement their agenda, buying off whoever they have to, corrupting the system, corrupting people, compromising everyone through blackmail and whatever else. That is their version of democracy. That is a total inversion of the people choosing with majority rule what it is they want. But they are quoting in the New York Times Bukele's vice presidential candidate who says to these people who say democracy is being dismantled. My answer is yes, we are not dismantling it. We are eliminating it. We are replacing it with something new. And I wonder if he's talking about a republic. We keep pretending that democracy equals freedom or democracy equals control by the people. That's not true. Democracy is just a word whose meaning has been shifted and changed with the force of the global regime. And now what they call democracy, which is actually just neo-feudalism, a global communist regime, a borderless, one world, liberal, international rules-based order. That is what they call it. That is, quote unquote, their democracy. And that absolutely must be eliminated and must be replaced. Actual democracy is right there in front of you. 90% of the people agreeing that Bukele is the right guy and the global regime responds by pretending that just isn't real and that he is actually just an autocrat and authoritarian. Ilhan Omar was trying to head things off at the pass last week. She posted on X, formerly Twitter. I led members of Congress in sending a letter to Secretary Blinken urging action on threats to democracy in El Salvador. The State Department must review its relationship with El Salvador and defend democratic values. The Salvadoran people deserve free and fair elections. And she went on. Nayib Bukele responded on X, formerly Twitter. We are honored to receive your attacks just days before our election. I would be very worried if we had your support. Thank you. And you gotta love that. I decided I do want to hit just one more piece of this New York Times article, kind of as a segue into the next topic. After discussing how scary it is that democracy is being eliminated in El Salvador, they write, the leaders of India, Turkey, and Hungary, for example, have all earned multiple terms at the polls while being accused of authoritarian tendencies. And of course, the people accusing them of authoritarian tendencies are not the people electing them. It's just the people in the global regime's propaganda media. Viktor Orban's people in Hungary do not think that he is a brutal authoritarian. So it doesn't matter at all what some New York Times writer thinks. We have to get completely out of this mindset where we believe that we should have some sort of say in who governs a free people. They write, in the United States, Donald Trump is closing in on the Republican nomination for president while facing criminal prosecution for mounting an insurrection. With every victory, analysts say these charismatic strongmen are forcing their countries to reckon with an increasingly urgent question. How much does the system of checks and balances, once considered a bedrock of liberal society, actually matter to voters? And if you got a little chill when they said that system of checks and balances, you are paying the right sort of attention because they are using that phrase the same way they use the phrase our democracy. We were told that democracy is a good thing and there's an argument that democracy is a good thing and it 
feels like the right thing intuitively. Oh, the most people want that one thing. I guess that's the right thing. That's what everyone should do. I get it. I might ask you why everyone needs to do something. I would love it if the government didn't do anything but protect the people, which is what they're supposed to be doing. And that is the one thing they definitely don't do in any respect. They basically do everything but that. The regime media is actually making me worry now about a system of checks and balances. I mean, are these authoritarian strongmen, these charismatic strongmen, are they removing the system of checks and balances? I haven't heard Trump say that he wants to remove the system of checks and balances. We're talking about vast, overwhelming majorities. If 90% of the country wants to do something, and we have already determined that we want to have a country and we want to have governments that do things based on the collective desires of the people, well, then I suppose the country should be doing that thing. The system of checks and balances is the people voting in the first place. Now, I'm certainly down with branches of government being able to check and balance one another. But if somebody gets reelected with 90% public support for that reelection and that person goes into office to implement policies they support and those 90% of the people support in the way that they were sold to the people. We don't actually need to give one other branch of government control so that the global regime can simply infiltrate that and then work their way back up to full power from there. And you have to understand that what we're seeing is the global regime in retreat. They are backing up and trying to hold whatever territory they still have. And when they lose that, they back up and then they try to hold there. We keep imagining this moment where they're just going to disappear. That's not going to happen. But what can happen is that the public wakes up to the degree they have in El Salvador or one of these other countries. And we get to that 80, 85, 90% support where everybody understands, wow, this is one corrupt, compromised uniparty. And we have a candidate and a movement who is set in direct opposition to that uniparty and promises to remove that uniparty in all its aspects from first the government, but then rippling out through society. All of the infiltrated institutions that worked hand in hand with that evil twin faction, that uniparty government, the representative of the global regime here in America. I still firmly believe we're on track for that. People could find out any day, for instance, that viruses don't exist. And immediately the COVID hoax and the vaccine hoax take on entirely new understandings. People could understand that our elections are stolen and that Donald Trump beat Joe Biden. Let's say just hypothetically that we found out that Trump beat Biden 81 million votes for Trump and Biden got something like 45 or 50 million votes. How would that change the public understanding of what's happening in our country right now? Now, I'm not saying I think that's going to happen tomorrow. I'm not saying I'm sure that something like that is even going to happen. I want to push toward those moments. Part of that depends on the people. Part of that depends on people being able to believe what they are seeing, being prepared to accept new information when it reaches them. And part of that is our responsibility. 
But if we do all of this well, there's no reason why 80 or 85 or 90 percent of the country can't be on the same page within the next nine months. We should be striving for that, not worried about pushing little parts of a screen on an iPad, sending our quote unquote vote into oblivion. And then after spending nine months focused on nothing but making sure people went in to play with the iPad, we then have to tell everybody, oh, you know what? When we said that would fix everything, we just meant unless they cheat again. And it turns out they have cheated again. So nothing's been fixed. And now we have to convince the entire country that, oh, yes, they do cheat in elections after we've spent years telling them no, that voting really is the only way to defeat this millennia old cabal. There is no reason why MAGA and America First cannot achieve the same sort of political dominance that Nayib Bukele has in El Salvador right now. The popular support is there or ready to be there once we break through this wall, this outer edge of the central narrative bubble. As soon as that thing is fully pierced and we have broken through the information gatekeeping on quote unquote our side, all those people we pretend are just there to wake up the normies nice and slow. Once the censorship is gone, convincing the public about what is obviously true and about what they are already prepared to understand as true will not be that difficult. Most of the people on the other side are only still there because they believe that the social incentives suggest they remain where they are and not announce that they have flipped affiliations. But once those social incentives change, their entire belief structure will change. The biggest chunk of people who remains on that side are people who are just basically go along to get along. They are detached from the impact of these decisions and these positions in reality. Their life is comfortable. You might say privileged. They have not been affected by apparently the greatest concurrent crises in American history. It just hasn't bothered them all that much. They haven't had to change. So why would they? Now, that's unfortunate for them because they went along with a lot of terrible stuff. They've defended some really heinous stuff and that's going away on their conscience. But they haven't accepted it yet because they haven't had to. Their own individual lives have not been impacted greatly enough for them to consider changing. Once the social incentives change, though, they will change to correspond to the social incentives and the social incentives are changing. Trump is becoming largely accepted. All of those people who went along with hating Trump, now they're going along with not hating Trump. El Salvador is a potential picture of our future. That sort of society where things are quickly getting cleaned up. We are embracing new ideas. We are going to solve problems for the benefit of the people actually in the country who exercise legitimate control over their government and that government governs with their consent. And think about the size of El Salvador, a nation of 6.3 million people. I mean, that's just a small fraction of the people who are in America as illegal aliens, and they are able to move in a new direction. They are showing the world what is possible. So let's turn to a country that does not seem to be as far along in the process as El Salvador is. They actually seem to kind of be keeping pace with the good old U.S. of A. And I'm talking about Pakistan. That's basically where we are in the process. We are somewhere equal to Pakistan. How about that? Congratulations, America. 
This is from Al Jazeera today. Pakistan elections 2024 by the numbers. On February 8th, as Pakistan votes in national elections, the country's democracy will face its latest test. It is an election that will decide the next government of the world's fifth most populous nation. Befittingly, it is also an election of large numbers, very large numbers. From voters and parties to the economy and more, here's a guide to Pakistan's election and to the nation itself in those numbers. So Al Jazeera is going to tell the rest of the world the regime perspective about Pakistan's election that happens in three days. In all, 128 million people registered to vote in the elections to pick 266 representatives on February 8th, forming the 16th parliament in a first-past-the-post system. Now, the first alarm bell that should go off is that they're really hyping this number of 128 million registered voters. So that means that we are to believe if they get some extraordinary turnout numbers, we should understand it's legitimate because this 128 million number will be seared in our consciousness as the number of people we expect to vote, which is not what this is. They show an infographic that says quite clearly 51.9% turnout in 2018 elections. So if that past trend holds, then we should see about 65 million voters. The infographic also says Pakistan will go to the polls on February 8th in a highly polarized environment on the backdrop of political chaos deep economic instability and security issues with the reemergence of attacks by armed fighters. This election also has the highest number of youth voters. How about that? That is like one of those things that they'll just tell you, Hey, we're in the middle of a uh, color revolution and we are telling the country that all of the young people love candidate X. Therefore with the expectation of high youth voter turnout, well, blah, blah, blah. You know the rest because we've seen it play out here over and over and over again. A series of potential explanations for why an unpopular party could actually win in a landslide. Oh, it's that massive youth voter turnout. In the country of 241 million people, two thirds are below the age of 30. A citizen becomes eligible to vote at the age of 18. It is also a vast country spanning mountainous terrain in its north, multiple deserts, and a 990-kilometer coastline. On February 8th, 90,582 polling stations will service voters who want to cast their ballots. In the contest are 5,121 candidates. They belong either to Pakistan's 167 registered political parties or are independents. The Pakistan Tariq A. Insaf Party, PTI, of former Prime Minister Imran Khan, has been barred from using its election symbol, the cricket bat, so its candidates will also be contesting as independents this time. Only a little more than half of Pakistan's electorate voted in the 2018 elections. With a crackdown against Khan's party ongoing, it is unclear whether the February 8th elections will see a lower turnout or a surge in the form of a silent protest vote in favor 
of PTI-aligned candidates. It sounds like they're not sure whether or not they're going to be able to steal this election. I really do have a strange suspicion that we are going to hear narratives very similar to this over the course of the next nine months, nine months from today, by the way, leading up to our election. The elections are taking place amid an ongoing economic crisis with inflation running at almost 30% and a weakening currency, which has shed more than 50% of its value against the United States dollar in the last two years. Meanwhile, the country entered into a nine-month, $3 billion bailout deal with the IMF in July last year, which is set to expire around the same time as a new government will take oath. Whoops. That sounds like our illegitimate Congress and fake President Joe Biden continuing to print and spend regime bucks, both them and the regime thinking that that might be enough to keep them in power, not worried that they might never get those regime bucks paid back because if they don't retain power, the whole regime buck system goes away. In addition to these economic woes, attacks from armed factions have increased in past months, adding to the instability of the country. The struggling economy has allocated 243.6 million rupees, which is about $850,000, for the cost of the elections, which many critics believe has effectively been engineered to keep Khan out of power and instead usher in a leader the military is comfortable with. Once again, that sounds like our fake president, Joe Biden, and the Uniparty's military-industrial complex here. They don't want Trump. They didn't want Trump. It's not like Biden's their guy, but at least he's a guy of theirs. Many critics believe that the elections have been effectively engineered to keep Imran Khan out of power. And it's happening in the same way they're trying to keep Donald Trump out of power. They're just prosecuting him for whatever they can make up and get away with. Pakistan's powerful military establishment has ruled the country directly for more than three decades of its independent history. It is the most powerful institution in the country. 12.5% of the government budget goes toward military spending, according to government documents. The run-up to the polls has seen Khan sentenced to jail in at least three different cases, and former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, who was previously jailed and then in exile, return and emerge as a leading contender again. While the economy is teetering, Pakistan is also on edge on the security front amid heightened tensions with three out of its four neighbors. Internally, there has been a dramatic surge in violence, while marginalized communities, geographically as well as religiously, have accused the state of mounting persecution. With a deeply polarized society and uncertainty about the future, many see this election as a referendum on the military's involvement in politics. Now let's get some more from the global regime's point of view. This is from CFR.org, directly from the Council on Foreign Relations. This is from January 31st, so six days ago. Pakistan is on edge ahead of 2024 elections. First, they deal with the three major candidates for prime minister, Nawaz Sharif. The frontrunner, Sharif is a three-time former prime minister who recently returned from exile in the UK, where he fled in 2019 after losing backing from Pakistan's influential military and being charged with corruption. 
experts, including senior advisor at the U.S. Institute of Peace and former CFR fellow Daniel Markey, say Sharif has since mended ties with the military and is now acting as its proxy. Sharif is running on the ticket of a party he founded, the center-right Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz. So it sounds like you've got your uniparty right candidate right there. Bilawal Bhutto Zardari, the son and grandson of former Pakistani prime ministers, Bhutto is the candidate for the center-left Pakistan People's Party. So you've got your uniparty left. And Imran Khan. Khan is by far the most popular politician in Pakistan and was the last elected prime minister, but he will not be on the February ballot. His term ended with a vote of no confidence after he lost the support of the military in 2022, and he was arrested and sentenced to prison on corruption charges, a move that his supporters say are politically motivated. Islamabad's Electoral Commission has banned Khan and many other candidates from his PTI party. What's at stake? And remember, this is the Council on Foreign Relations. The elections come amid a spiraling economic crisis and a worsening security situation. In the past two years, the Pakistani rupee dropped to a record low. Inflation soared as food, fuel, and medicine costs spiked. Foreign reserves shrank. The country approached default several times. Floods wrought tens of billions of dollars in damages, and blackouts caused significant disruptions. As prime minister, Khan railed against an international monetary fund loan program Pakistan had entered in 2019 and subsequent efforts to rejoin it have been accompanied by steep austerity measures. Meanwhile, Pakistan's largely ungoverned western border regions are again at the center of fears of destabilizing conflict. Terrorist attacks killed more than 1,500 people in 2023 the deadliest year for terrorism-related fatalities in the country since 2016. Tensions with Afghanistan over its alleged support for terrorist groups led Pakistani officials to order the deportation of almost 2 million Afghan migrants in late 2023. In January 2024, Tehran bombed what it said were separatist militants in Pakistan and Islamabad responded by bombing separatist targets of its own in Iran, the first airstrikes on Iranian soil in almost four decades. These threats could redraw attention to the military's kingmaking role in elections. The army is the country's most popular institution, consistently polling far above politicians, courts, and the Electoral Commission. Khan has sought to change this balance of power, including by stirring protests against the military's influence in politics. If Khan succeeds in challenging the military, there is a possibility that, quote, the whole system comes tumbling down and it becomes a revolutionary moment, and quote, Markey from the Council on Foreign Relations says, do you think that we could hear narratives like that throughout the rest of this year leading up to our election? I certainly do. There are going to be different variations because it's a different country. But the same way we have moved in America away from a focus on our local elections, our city elections, our state elections. Now, everything is about our national issues, quote unquote, and even our local politicians and our state politicians get elected or not based on how we are told the general public feels 
about these huge national elections and leading national candidates. It's completely and totally skewed. And so we've gone from state-based elections into, at least conceptually, this idea of national elections. And if you take that one step further, we can watch not only have we gone from state to national elections, now we have gone from national to global elections. And because of that, we now have these quote-unquote global issues. And they're the more macro kind of things. We hear about the rise of global populism. And I'm not challenging that. It's definitely happening. But why is there a global populist movement? Well, it's because the entire world is in revolt against the global regime trying to install a global government in the first place. But because of this, we can see that these global issues are playing out in other countries around the world. We can see the same narrative through lines appearing in the coverage of elections of other countries. As long as we are willing to look on different timelines and understand these cycles of infiltration by the regime or these cycles of removing the regime. Lula da Silva down in Brazil seems to be Brazil's version of Joe Biden. Brazil got a version of January 6th in America. January 6th itself is the modern day version of Germany's Reichstag fire. The playbook doesn't change. It just goes around and around and around. It adapts to new technology. Different countries have variations in the program based on their own cultural and societal issues or based on the varying forms of government, but it's the same thing playing out over and over and over again. El Salvador seems to be ahead of us. Pakistan seems to be right on track with us. Back to the piece from CFR.org. Can Pakistan expect fair and free elections? Experts say it is unlikely. According to the global democracy watchdog Freedom House, Pakistan's electoral process is considered partly free. While it holds regular elections, the country operates under a hybrid rule between the military and civilian government, and no elected prime minister has completed a full term. And they have a graphic showing the history of this since 1988. Benazir Bhutto, government dissolved by president. Nawaz Sharif's first term from 1990 to 93. He resigned. Bhutto again. Dismissed by the president, Nawaz Sharif again, deposed by General Pervez Musharraf. Yusuf Raza Gilani from 2008 to 2012, disqualified by the Supreme Court. Nawaz Sharif again, disqualified by the Supreme Court. And Imran Khan ousted in a vote of no confidence. So basically the same people have been handing control back and forth for the last 35 years. The shifting treatment of Khan and Sharif is a case in point. In 2018, the military apparatus shepherded Khan to power via electoral manipulation and corruption charges against Sharif and his allies. Now Sharif is back in its good graces and Khan has been disqualified. The Supreme Court struck down a previous lifetime ban on those with criminal convictions contesting elections, carving a path for Sharif's candidacy, while authorities have found a range of procedural ways to hobble the PTI's campaign and stifle any pro-con organizing. Meanwhile, there is still a possibility that the elections could be delayed for a third time since the original November 2023 date. The sense in Pakistan is that the election will be held once the establishment has finished sidelining Khan and can be assured 
that an election will yield its desired outcome of a Sharif victory, writes Brookings Institution fellow Madiha Afzal. The article goes on to note that Pakistan has recently distanced itself from President Joe Biden's efforts to promote democracy globally. Some experts say Washington has decided to tread softly on Islamabad's electoral issues, in contrast with its assertive stance on Bangladesh's recent elections, to avoid a deeper political crisis. So it sounds like they're keeping the U.S. State Department far away from Pakistan's elections. Joe Biden's efforts to promote democracy globally, Pakistan apparently is not into that. The Council on Foreign Relations here is essentially saying that this election is being engineered, it's being rigged, it's being stolen. The people cannot expect a free and fair election. Why aren't they going nuts about the breakdown in democracy here? Why is the regime only concerned about our democracy when it's an example of someone being elected in an overwhelming landslide? Why do we need to freak out about democracy in El Salvador, but not in Pakistan? The CFR closes this article with some brief analysis on how these elections might affect relations with India and China. Regarding India, decades of tension between the two nuclear armed powers had threatened to boil over during the 2019 cross-border conflicts in Kashmir. But India will also be holding general elections this year, and some analysts argue that under a Sharif administration, another term for incumbent Prime Minister Narendra Modi holds the potential for a normalization of relations. Interesting. Regarding China, Beijing has become one of Islamabad's most important allies, providing military assistance and billions of dollars of investment through China's Belt and Road Initiative infrastructure push. Some BRI projects, such as the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, have slowed and even stalled in recent years, but analysts say that a new Sharif government could put these projects back on track and potentially accelerate cooperation with Beijing. But let's spend some more time on Imran Khan and what is going on there. This is from Time Magazine today. Pakistan's elections are being brazenly rigged. Why doesn't the U.S. seem to care? For a man staring down the barrel of a 10-year jail sentence, Imran Khan was oddly nonchalant in court last Tuesday. As his representatives argued passionately for a fair hearing, Pakistan's ex-prime minister retrieved his eyeglasses, unfolded a newspaper, and did his utmost to ignore the surrounding commotion. At one point, he looks up and says, oh, I don't need to listen to this. It's a fixed match. I know what the result is going to be. Khan's sister, Alima, tells Time. So why are all of you wasting your time? It's not a difficult conclusion to draw. Khan's trial for allegedly leaking state secrets was conducted in camera inside a makeshift courtroom within a jail complex with public and media banned. Khan's own defense team were blocked from taking part, with the judge appointing two state-employed colleagues of the prosecution to represent the former national cricket captain instead. 
when they gave the sentence, he said, oh, it's only 10 years. I thought it would be 15, says Alima. So he's laughing through the whole thing. Does that sound like what's happening with Donald Trump and these ridiculous political persecutions? Sure does. The case heard one of more than 180 separate charges Khan 71 currently faces and that have rendered a return to power nigh impossible for Pakistan's most popular politician. So he's got 180 separate charges. That's twice as many as Donald Trump. He was back in court on Thursday on separate corruption charges related to the transfer of land for a charitable university he founded. On Saturday, he was sentenced to an additional seven years for having an, quote, un-Islamic marriage. It's becoming such a joke, says Alima. And again, that does sound like what Donald Trump is dealing with, including the idea that he is somehow conducting espionage. Khan accused of allegedly leaking state secrets. That sounds similar to the Jack Smith documents case. But few in Pakistan are laughing as the nuclear armed nation of 240 million stumbles towards general elections on February 8th. The legal onslaught on Khan dovetails with a broader purge of his PTI party, which has seen thousands of workers arrested. Dozens of its leaders quit under duress. Its famed cricket bat logo banned and constituency boundary lines redrawn to allegedly benefit its opponents. Khan's name has been scrubbed from mainstream media and his own nomination papers rejected. Of course, there is no level playing field and no way this election can be seen as free and fair, says Patricia Gossman, Associate Asia Director for Human Rights Watch. And this is interesting because now you have elements of the regime trying to let everybody know that these elections aren't going to be free and fair. But let's continue. The obvious question is why a U.S. whose president has called democracy promotion overseas, quote, the defining challenge of our time, end quote, has not taken a stronger stance to condemn such shenanigans. When asked at a press briefing Wednesday about attempts to muzzle the PTI, State Department spokesman Matthew Miller cut the question short, saying he couldn't comment on the specific report because, quote, I haven't seen it. Before issuing the bromide, we want to see free and fair elections take place in Pakistan. And here is the audio of that, by the way. I'm going to pick up on this, this Pakistan question. You said earlier that that's a matter for the Pakistani courts. When it came to Venezuela, that's a political matter, it seems. The Venezuelan courts, of course, approved you know, Maduro's banning of the party. Now you could say... That court is under Maduro's thumb. It's a kangaroo court. But in Pakistan, the prosecution was held in secret. Uh, just recently, the, the, his attorneys, Imran Khan's attorneys, were kept out of the courtroom, and they took attorneys from the prosecution team and made him and put them on the defense team. Like the, nothing about uh, that prosecution seems less than kangaroo. So why would? Venezuela's be a political case, but when it comes to Pakistan, that's a matter for the Pakistani courts. So there are different situations, and we have not yet made that conclusion with respect to the Pakistani legal process. Uh, when you look at Venezuela, um, we are looking at the entire history of the Maduro regime in cracking down uh, on democracy and, most importantly in this case, failing to carry out the commitments that they made to allow 
candidates to run. Um, uh, it's a commitment that they made that the country has reneged on, and that's why we were able to make the assessment in that case. So there might still be a determination on the Pakistan question. I, I just don't, I, I don't have anything to preview, but it's not one that we've made at this time. Let's continue with the Time article. Pakistan is, after all, a U.S. treaty ally, albeit one whose interests have not always aligned on security matters, to put it mildly. America remains its top export destination and a key source of aid, thus retaining significant influence. Isn't that amazing? We just pay them to do what we want them to do. And by we, of course, I mean the evil twin faction in the United States, our uniparty, our American representation of that global regime sends Pakistan our money so that they go along with the global regime agenda. A power vacuum and popular unrest serves nobody's interests at a time when the U.S. is desperately trying to stop Israel's war against Hamas from spilling into a broader regional conflict. America's not actually desperately trying to stop that. The fake president is actively trying to create a war over there. In truth, American reticence is both personality-driven and structural. Khan retained an oddly chummy relationship with the overtly Islamophobic Donald Trump. <laughs> ah, yeah, man, the Muslims, they still like and get along with Donald Trump. I guess those Muslims just aren't as good at spotting Islamophobia as our mainstream journalists are here in America. So Khan is pals with Trump, but... According to Time, he proved no friend to Joe Biden, fuming over the president's failure to call him following his 2020 election victory and ranting about a U.S.-sponsored plot to oust him. I say I genuinely do love these mainstream journalists. Their retardation is so enlightening. They really believe that everyone knows Joe Biden really is a legitimate president, even though all world leaders know that's not the case. Imran Khan and Joe Biden never talking is kind of a big deal, especially while he still continues to be chummy with Donald Trump. The case regarding leaking state secrets relates to allegations Khan released a confidential diplomatic cipher that he tenuously claims proves Washington pulled the strings of his ouster in an April 2022 no-confidence vote. So he is saying that the American Uniparty is responsible for his removal from his position as prime minister in Pakistan, that the fake president's administration did that. Now, what if he's right? What if he's right and the fake president, Joe Biden, actually is a bad guy? Could that cause problems? Yeah, it could cause problems. American engagement in Pakistan boils down to wanting the South Asian nation to keep a lid on Islamic terrorism and stabilize relations with its historic nemesis, India, and Khan's record is poor on both. On his watch, deaths from terrorism soared dramatically while Pakistan also ranked as the world's fifth most dangerous country for journalists. And honestly, America needs to do a better job with that. It would be nice if we could get to be number one on that continuously. Regarding relations with New Delhi, Khan called Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi a racist and Hindu supremacist and raised the prospect of war over disputed Kashmir. More egregiously, Khan shamelessly cozied up to both Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. 
This guy's based. That relationship with Modi is interesting, though. But the bigger issue for the U.S. is structural. Ultimately, it doesn't much matter who holds political office in Pakistan because true power lies with its military, which has ruled the nation for over half its history and today acts as kingmaker. As one former top U.S. diplomat in Islamabad tells Time, when we had a crisis, we didn't call the prime minister. We called the chief of army staff. General Asim Munir occupies that rarefied post today, and it is he who has orchestrated Khan's downfall after the two fell out spectacularly over military appointments and other bugbears, not least the ransacking of military properties by PTI supporters on May 9th. It was also Munir's decision to bring back three-time former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif from exile quash his corruption conviction, repeal his lifetime ban from politics, and pave the way for a historic fourth stint in power. But as no Pakistani prime minister has ever completed a full term, few are betting on Sharif staying around long. Relations with Pakistan's top brass take precedence. Tellingly, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken hosted Munir in Washington in December. I mean, if the illegitimate White House and its illegitimate State Department are responsible for getting Imran Khan removed, and now they are working with the military government there to have this guy Nawaz Sharif reinstalled, then maybe that's why they're not interested in defending democracy in Pakistan. Given that Nawaz's three terms in power ended with a fallout with the military, we can expect the same will happen this time around, says Madiha Afzal, a foreign policy fellow at the Brookings Institution. So both the Council on Foreign Relations and Time magazine are both quoting this guy Afzal. Now, wait a second. Isn't Brookings Institution that global regime think tank? where Norm Eisen, the author of the Color Revolution playbook, does his work? And yeah, it is. Isn't that the place where Norm Eisen compiled those white papers on how, let's just say, if Trump were to be indicted, he could be indicted, that actually formed the basis for the Trump indictments? Isn't that the same Brookings Institution? It's like this guy, Medea Afzal, is just reporting what they have decided is going to happen. They've written the playbook. This is the playbook that's going to play out. They're bringing Nawaz Sharif in. They're going to install him. And then he will have a fallout with the military and be removed. That is what they're telling us right here. Given that Nawaz's three terms in power ended with a fallout with the military, we can expect the same will happen this time around. Amazing. In the near term, however, from the U.S. perspective, Sharif is a safe, predictable pair of hands who won't rock the boat with India. The State Department seems to be quite comfortable with Nawaz Sharif, says Tariq Amin Khan, a politics professor at Toronto Metropolitan University. But Sharif's record on the economy is poor and reputation for graft, quote, really quite legendary, end quote, adds Amin Khan. And by the way, Sharif sounds like he is exactly from the same mold as Lula da Silva in Brazil. He had previously been convicted 
for political corruption and the regime brought him back and stole an election in his favor to put him in office where he is performing the same role that Joe Biden is performing here. Since the turn of the millennium, per capita GDP in Pakistan has risen by an average of just 1% annually. In 2000, the average Pakistani was some 50% richer than his Indian counterpart. Today, they are 25% poorer. Headline inflation rose to 29.7% year over year in December, owing to tax hikes and a sharp fall in the currency. Having been prime minister for more time than anyone else since 1990, Sharif must take a fair share of blame for Pakistan's poor economic performance over this period, writes Garrett Leather, senior Asia economist for Capital Economics in a briefing note. Despite his spotty diplomatic and security record, growth under Khan averaged at 6% for his last two years in office, despite headwinds such as the pandemic. The risk that a spiraling economy overseen by a government that lacks broad popular support would set the stage for significant social unrest, chances of which would be amplified by interference with the actual voting process. The PTI is refusing to give up and has managed to register candidates for the vast majority of constituencies. With the PTI logo banned, the party has set up an online portal to show supporters which officially independent candidate has its backing. Give me a free and fair election, and I think we will run away with three quarters of seats, if not more says Rauf Hassan, PTI's principal spokesman and a former special assistant to Khan. And that's amazing because that's basically what I've been saying for three years about Trump, America First and MAGA. Give us a free and fair election, remove the censorship online, and we will win 75%, 85%, 95% of the electorate. I have absolutely no doubt about that. They cannot even argue with us much less win over the American public to their actual policies. All we have to do is talk about what they actually want to do and on whose behalf, and the whole conversation would be over. We could unite on politics in this country really easily. And it sounds like the people in Pakistan understand that for themselves as well. Various opinion polls put Khan's popularity at around 60 to 80%. And the threat of a strong showing from his supporters may prompt the military to take more decisive action to hobble them. The election, as it is set up, is already not free nor fair, says Afzal. The only question, in my view, is if there is overt rigging on election day, end quote. Street violence and any security response would, above all, make it more difficult to secure another IMF bailout one deemed essential to avoid default and potential economic collapse. And that is what they say will happen if we allow a government shutdown to go through. It's almost like when we agree to keep accepting the printing of more regime fiat currency based on the extension of our indentured servitude and the indentured servitude of future generations, we're basically just performing the same function that is performed in these countries when they accept bailouts from the International Monetary Fund. Crazy, huh? My greatest fear is that this election is going to be called out for being a sham, 
says Anita Weiss, a professor of international studies at the University of Oregon. And there will be riots all over Pakistan that it can barely endure because of the severe economic crisis. So they know the elections will not be free or fair. The military is trying to install its guy upon whose choice they agree with the illegitimate administration in America. And they are trying to keep the most popular party and its candidates from winning anywhere. And the biggest concern for the global regime is whether or not that party that has been completely and obviously deprived of its voice and its vote, whether or not they will actually cause trouble. This is a preview of our elections, and it's being published by the same outlet that published Molly Ball's piece on how the regime fortified our elections here in the United States in 2020. To finish, as such, the Biden administration may yet regret not taking a stronger stance to protect the democratic values it claims to hold so dear. Quote, it would likely not have changed the overall direction of what's happening, says Afzal. But Washington voicing concern would have given Pakistan's military establishment pause and perhaps softened the extent of the crackdown. So the evil twin faction, the Uniparty in America, is standing by the side of the Pakistani military as they bring back this man, Nawaz Sharif, and prevent the most popular politician and his party from running in these elections in every possible way they can. They have set up their own kind of side infrastructure to tell people how to vote for their specific candidates, and the attempt is being made to thwart that as well. So we shall see. They're having this election in a couple of days. It's going to get very interesting very quickly, assuming they do go through with that election. It looks to me like this is a pretty good parallel to what we're going to see this year in the United States. They're politically prosecuting and persecuting Donald Trump. If they are able to convict him and attempt to throw him in prison, they might also attempt to remove his name from the ballots as they're doing in states across the country. That effort could get considerably worse. Who knows what the Republican Party decides to do with their level of control over the nomination? Could you see Trump removed from the ballot, them bringing back some Republican candidate to be that placeholder, take on Joe Biden, or somehow elevate a third-party candidate, force Americans to revert to unusual means of voting, like writing candidates, for instance? So who's to say? I certainly don't know. We will just have to see what the future holds. But we're getting lots of hints, and it really is worth noticing that the same stories are playing out again and again and again all around the world on different timelines. We can watch them play out. We can learn by what's happening there, what might be happening here. We can listen to our media, the global regime's mouthpiece to us. We can listen to these stories. We can understand how they might tell these stories to us. And we know at least broadly what interests they're trying to protect. We need to learn from the experience of other countries as they contest against this global regime and its infiltration, as they try to remove these elements from their country. We can learn from them. And most importantly, we can learn what to look out for, potentially what to expect here so that when it arrives, we have already 
thought through what works and what doesn't. We've already learned how to recognize the signs of what's happening somewhere else when it happens here. Or we can just quadruple down on hoping to beat the regime at ballot harvesting. I may take the day off tomorrow to focus on some writing. I will update tomorrow on whether or not there will be an episode. But if I decide against that, I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!